Well, this morning we're continuing in Luke's Gospel. Um, Last time we were in Luke's Gospel was two weeks ago, and when we looked at Luke's Gospel last, we looked at the event where Jesus was roughly 40 days old, and Joseph and Mary, his parents, took Jesus into the temple to be presented, and we heard those incredible addresses from Simeon, from Anna, and uh, their, pre- their prophetic and jubilant expressions of praise. And today we're just continuing in the next narrative section, Luke 2, 41 through 52. And this roughly fasts for- fast us forward uh, 12 years into the life of Jesus. So Jesus is now a 12-year-old, and we're looking at Luke 2, 41 through 52. Uh, the text is printed in your bulletin, it's up on the screens, and of course it's in your Bibles. So please follow along with me as I read. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that as we dive into it, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to understanding by your spirit, that you would pierce us uh, by uh, the words that are, that are written here and that we, we read and that we speak, that by the Holy Spirit, you would convict us of our pride, you would humble us, that you would also encourage us and uplift us in our humility. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, the text that's before us this morning, I think, is one of the most unique texts in the Gospels. And that's because this is the only account in the four Gospels where we're given a window, albeit a very brief window, into the childhood of Jesus. You know, Mark's Gospel begins right off the bat with the ministry of John the Baptist when Jesus is roughly 30 years old. The Gospel according to John begins with a, a beautiful paragraph about Jesus' pre-existence as the eternal, the eternal word, right? But then it, die, it, it jumps us right to when Jesus is roughly a 30-year-old man beginning his ministry. And the Gospel according to Matthew, the only other Gospel that provides us with an infancy narrative section, right after the infancy narrative section, it moves us to John the Baptist's ministry right when Jesus is a 30-year-old. None of the other Gospels provide us with a window into the childhood of Jesus, like Luke does in our text this morning. 
Now, for whatever reason, there's always been a heavy interest in what Jesus was like as a child. During the second century AD and beyond, so roughly 100 years after our Gospels were completed, roughly in the second century and beyond, several completely fictitious works were crafted that imagined what Jesus was like as a child, narrating Jesus' imaginative self-consciousness, who he perceived himself to be, and even uh, narrating a healthy dose of miracles, too. Now, one of these works is called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, not to be confused with The Gospel of Thomas, which was another pretty crazy work that was written a few hundred years later, but The Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Now, The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, again, it says a gospel. This is really not a gospel on par with our four gospels. It's a fictitious work that's written a a hundred years later. But The Infancy Gospel of Thomas presents Jesus as a child prodigy, essentially, who works some pretty wild miracles. It pictures Jesus as a five-year-old playing with a river by lapping it into different pools, and then he gets rebuked for that. Don't do that, Jesus. Later, it narrates Jesus fashioning sparrows from clay and then breathing on these sparrows and giving them life as they flutter away. And then later, James, Jesus' brother, um, you know, the guy that wrote the, the book of James later in the New Testament, James, his brother, got bitten by a snake and Jesus breathed on the bite and James was quote-unquote made whole. Interesting stuff. Popular imaginative notions about Jesus like that abound today too, Right? There was a movie that was released in the theaters just this past spring that imagined, it was an imaginative portrayal of Jesus' childhood. I didn't see the film, maybe some of you did, but from the synopsis that I read this past week, the film portrays Mary and Joseph as the ones who apparently know exactly who Jesus is. They have it all figured out, and their task is to carefully reveal to Jesus his true identity, who he is. Well, Whatever we make of the entertainment value of these various portrayals, and I'll emphasize again that these various portrayals, even the earliest ones like the infancy gospel of Thomas, were composed much later than our gospels. And unlike our four gospels, they aren't historical presentations. Some of them aren't even intending to go that route. They're supposed to be, they're presenting themselves more like historical fiction than anything else. But nevertheless, whether we find in them any entertainment value at all, their very production reveals something about us. Their very production reveals a natural curiosity among humanity at large concerning Jesus, a curiosity that spans throughout church history. Simply put, Jesus is the most important person who has ever lived, and as such, we want to know as much about him as we possibly can. And such curiosity certainly isn't bad, right? Especially as Christians, we should continuously desire to mine the depths of who Jesus reveals himself to be in the word of God, in the scriptures, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. But one thing that our gospels, our the word of God does, uniquely so, that none of these other pseudo-gospels, we might say, do, is they bring us along very slowly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John The unique thing about them, a unique thing about our Gospels, is that they bring us along slowly. They slow us down as we read about the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us, for instance, everything we might want to know about the childhood of Jesus. Nor nor do the other Gospel writers tell us every single factoid about Jesus' life. Remember, again, the end of John's Gospel. He says there wouldn't be enough books in the world to to be written that that could tell of everything Jesus said and did. Instead, the strategy of our Gospels is to slow us down and to give us what's most foundational. And then they call us 
not to quickly move ahead, but to slowly and carefully reflect on the nuggets that they do give us. So, with that said, what exactly does Luke give us in this very unique narrative today? Well, in short, Luke teaches us two things about Jesus and his ministry to follow. Very broad things, albeit, at that. But the two things he tells us in this narrative section, Luke teaches us, one, about Jesus' unique relationship to the Father, and second, by virtue of that unique relationship. So what flows out of that relationship, we also learn about his mission, about what Jesus is called to do. So that's where we're going today, looking at Jesus' unique relationship to the Father, and then by virtue of that relationship, what is his mission? What is this Jesus Christ all about? We're going to look at that today. So first, we learn about Jesus' unique relationship to the Father. So thus far, in our slow trod through the infancy narrative section, this is, again, this is the end of chapter 2 that we're looking at today, and this closes out the infancy narrative section in Luke's gospel, right? We've gone from Jesus' birth and John's birth announced to the births themselves to prophetic praise that followed, and now this is really the tail end of this. This is the, if we think of this as a play, this is like the fade to black before we encounter Jesus and his ministry in action. Well, throughout the infancy narrative section, Luke has been slowly painting us a picture of Jesus. Again, he doesn't tell us everything we might want to know all at once. For instance, as Luke progresses through the infancy narrative section, he gave us various titles attributed to Jesus, right? That were placed on the lips of different characters. We learned from Gabriel. Remember the angel Gabriel? He made a few different cameo appearances thus far in the infancy narrative section. We learned from the angel Gabriel that Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High and the Son of God. Important titles, and we'll talk about those in a second. Later, when the angels appear to the shepherds in the field, remember right after Jesus is born, the angels appear in the field, they call Jesus Savior and Christ the Lord. So right away, we have all of these different titles that are being attributed to Jesus in the infancy narrative section. And each one of these titles, if we carefully reflect on them, they add a nuanced understanding to who this Jesus is. Furthermore, each prophetic hymn in the infancy narrative section. So remember, we talked about Mary's Magnificat, her, her um, expression of praise. We saw Zachariah's Benedictus. And then we saw the prophetic expression of praise on the lips of Simeon and Anna. And these, these uh, prophetic expressions, they overlap in a lot of ways. And if we just read through very quickly, they might seem to be saying to us the same exact thing. But even still... They, if we pay very careful attention to those prophetic expressions of praise, they add, each one, one at a time, a very nuanced understanding of who this Jesus is and what he's about. It builds, us an, it builds for us what to expect one step at a time. Now keep in mind, again, I've said this in the past, that Luke is writing to an audience that already knows the ending to the story. Spoiler alert, we know the ending to the story too. Luke and the other gospel writers, they don't bring us along slowly because they assume we don't know the ending to the story. Remember that in the first four verses of Luke's gospel, when Luke tells us uh, the purpose of why he's writing, he addresses this guy, Theophilus, and he says that basically my purpose in writing this is to give you assurance over what you have already been taught. The purpose of the gospels isn't to give us a quick doctrinal statement either. Not that that's a bad thing. That's a good thing, and we need those too. But rather, the purpose of the Gospels is so that we would savor Jesus one step at a time. 
savor him one bite at a time. I like what Dr. Jonathan Pennington, a New Testament scholar, writes on this. He writes, the Gospels are written so that we might experience firsthand the risen Christ, even as the original followers experienced him through the abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thus, we should read the Gospels with this goal in mind, seeking not simply to reduce the Gospel stories to their point, but to enter into the narrative world of the Gospels experientially. And this is what the Gospels do to us. They call us to pause often, to reflect at every twist and turn on the one we call Lord. So keeping all of that in mind, this entire strategy for reading the infancy narrative section up to our text today, when we come to our text today, we find one more thing to reflect upon, and it's a big thing at that. Jesus, in the first words he speaks in Luke's gospel, he says, why were you looking for me to his parents? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In the first words out of Jesus' mouth, Jesus refers to God as his father. Now we have to understand just how unique the level of intimacy Jesus is expressing here truly is. R. Kent Hughes, a commentator on Luke's gospel, tells us that in the Old Testament, God is only directly referred to Father 14 times. And in those 14 times, he's only called Father in reference to the nation Israel. In other words, unlike our passage today where Jesus says, my Father, explicitly, unlike our passage today, we don't find in the entire catalog of the Old Testament one person calling God his or her Father individually. So the first words out of Jesus' mouth are not only unique because they're the first words uttered in Luke's gospel, but they're also unique because no figure in Scripture had said anything like this before. This is partly why Joseph and Mary, in verse 50, they don't quite understand what's going on here. This is a very odd thing for someone to say, and they they don't understand it all. Now, like I said a few minutes ago, Flashing back to the infancy narrative section in Luke's gospel, Luke has used several different titles for Jesus. We just said that. For instance, Jesus is called the Son of God and the Son of the Most High. Those are two two titles that are attributed to Jesus on the mouth of Gabriel. Gabriel says to Mary that this will be called the Son of the Most High, and then in the same narrative he says, this is the Son of God. Now those are two synonymous terms that express this concept of sonship, we would say. And we find sonship language like that sort of littered throughout the Old Testament in many different forms. For instance, the individual who sits on the throne of David, you know, David, the big king of Israel, the individual that sits on the throne of David, David and Solomon, for instance, are referred to sort of in that sonship type language. They're referred to as a son of God in that sense. Israel too, Hosea 11.1, or a, a Hosea 11, I think, is a, is a good reference here. Israel, too, is collectively referred to as the son, right? God calls Israel my son in a collective type of sense. And as we'll see in two weeks when we look at Luke's genealogy, that's right, we have some genealogy coming up, so that's exciting, um, we find that Adam is called the son of God, okay? So sonship language like this is fairly flexible and simply denotes a unique relationship. So if you were to say, if you were to call me Andrew, son of Kevin, Kevin's my dad's name, you would be saying that there's something about me 
There's something about who I am, there's something about what I do, or there's something about what I'm called to do that reflects or mirrors my dad in some way. And that's when we talk about David and Solomon as sort of the son of God or a son of God. There's something about their role as the king of Israel that's supposed to reflect God in some way. Now, it's true that Jesus, when we say Jesus is the Son of God, we're, we're calling Jesus the Son of God in a unique, unrepeatable sense. And that's absolutely true. But the point is that in our passage today, Luke has once again heightened our understanding as to who this Jesus is. Because no individual called Jesus their father or called God their father like Jesus did. Sonship language like Son of God it was pretty unique in the Old Testament. But calling God my father was absolutely unheard of. So Luke has heightened that tension. He's heightened our understanding even more as far as who this Jesus is. Daryl Bach, a commentator on Luke's gospel, writes this about this, uh, all of this stuff. He says, the infancy material stresses Jesus as Messiah, the son of God in a unique sense. Son of God and Messiah, those are pretty synonymous terms. But this text, Luke 2.49 is one of two hints early in Luke's gospel that he is also much, much more. Luke reveals Jesus' identity gradually, just like we said, bringing the reader along in an understanding of who Jesus is. So, with all of that said, the question can be rightly raised this morning, just what exactly is Jesus claiming when he calls God in this text, my father? Well, I think John's gospel helps us here answer this question. So we heard uh, Shane read, read for us that John 5 passage today, and that John 5 passage is pretty important, and particularly the verses leading up to that John 5 passage give us a lot of insight into what exactly Jesus means here today. We find in John 5, before the passage that Shane read for us, we find that Jesus has first, he healed an invalid at the pool of uh, Bethsaida on the Sabbath. If you remember that incident right before the passage, Jesus, Jesus does a lot of healing in the Gospels. Well, Jesus is healed an invalid on the Sabbath. And then after he heals an invalid on the Sabbath, he's confronted about this by the Jews. The Jews don't like the fact that he's healing on the Sabbath. And the text tells us in John 5, 16, that the Jews were persecuting him more and more because he did these things on the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. And so persecution started for Jesus. But then the text in John continues, again, still right before the text that Shane read for us this morning. Jesus responds to the Jews and their accusation. And this heightens the tension even tenfold. Jesus tells us in verses 17 and 18 of John 5, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and this is the important part of John 5, 18, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Wow. Jesus, in John's text, is claiming to be equal to God. As the author of Hebrews puts it in the beginning, in the opening to the, to the epistle of Hebrews, Jesus is essentially claiming to be the exact imprint of God. So when we take stock from this John 5 passage of all that it means for Jesus to to claim God as Father, we find that Luke in our passage has given us one more piece to the puzzle and a huge piece at that to just who this Jesus is. And as we progress in Luke's gospel, being captivated by the one who is fully man and fully God, 
we discover the remarkable truth about just what this means for you and I as the people of God. One remarkable thing we find is that by virtue of being the people of God, by virtue of being adopted, by virtue of being justified, by virtue of being in Christ, you know that that language that Paul uses, in Christ, by virtue of being in Christ, you and I, friends, have the privilege of calling God our Father. Although we certainly aren't claiming when we say God is her Father, the same sense that Jesus is claiming when he calls God my Father, by virtue of Jesus' work, by virtue of his ministry and who he is as the eternal Son of God, we have been granted access to our God. A unique level of intimacy with our God can be found because of what Jesus has done. And consider just what a privilege this is. Later in Luke, in Luke 11, Jesus' disciples come to him and they ask very, very humbly, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus responds with the prayer that the church has been praying for over 2,000 years that begins our Father. Friends, whether we realize it or not, every time we pray, and especially every time we begin our prayers by directing them to the Father, even subconsciously so, we're not even thinking about it, but when we address God as our Father, we're benefiting from our status as adopted children of God. We're benefiting from Christ's work and his unique access to the Father as the basis for our access, and even for the basis that we can be assured that he hears us when we pray. The very resource of prayer is a resource that is ours because of who Christ is and his unique access to the Father. And such intimacy that we're invited into as the people of God, this privileged intimacy calls us to also reflect on who we'll trust in. Notice that in our text this morning, there's a subtle interplay between Joseph as the father of Jesus, and God as the father of Jesus. In verses 41, 43, and 48 in our text, Joseph and Mary are referred to as Jesus's parents. And then in the second half of verse 48, Mary refers to Joseph as Jesus's father. Now, legally, Joseph was Jesus's father, even though Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Since Mary was legally the wife of Joseph at the time that the Holy Spirit visited her and, uh, and uh, conceived and conceived Jesus Christ in her womb, at that time, even though Joseph hadn't taken her home yet to be his wife, legally, at that point, she actually was the wife of Joseph. And as such, any child during that engagement that was born to Mary would be considered Joseph's as long as he accepted that responsibility to care for the child. So it isn't wrong in our text for Joseph to be called Jesus's father. And this narrative section concludes with Jesus returning home with Joseph and Mary, submitting to them as his parents. Yet even still, Jesus' statement in verse 49, right after Mary says Joseph, calls Joseph his father, Jesus reveals where his foundational allegiance lies. Let me read you what New Testament scholar Joel Green says on this. Hopefully this will clear it up. He writes, Luke repeatedly refers to Jesus' parents. So just like we said in our text this morning, Luke repeatedly refers to Jesus' parents. Mary refers to Jesus as a child and speaks of Jesus' father. And Jesus counters by naming the God of the temple as his father. That is, 
Luke has staged this interchange so as to pinpoint the primary issue. Who is Jesus' father? To whom does he owe primary allegiance? Now, Jesus isn't all snubbing Joseph by calling God his father. Not at all. But he is indicating that his ultimate allegiance, Jesus Christ's ultimate allegiance, doesn't lie in what Joseph, Mary, or anybody else might want for his life. His allegiance lies in what God, his true father, in a unique sense, is calling him to do. Joel Green continues, writing, The point is that Jesus must align himself with God's purpose, even if this appears to compromise his relationship with his parents. Friends, this is a call for us to examine where our primary allegiance lies to. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't listen to our parents, children, just because God is our father. It doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to your parents. Please keep listening to them. Or it doesn't doesn't mean, too, that we should scuff at the wise uh, wise counsel in our lives. This isn't permission, in other words, to assume complete autonomy. Notice again that Jesus still returns home with Joseph and Mary and submits to them. But rather, this is a call to consider those voices that you are listening to over and above Jesus. Is Jesus and his gospel the one who are shaping you, or is it another gospel? Other often good things can be cloaked in the garb of a false gospel. Are you even aware of the other pseudo-gospels that are out there, that promise life or that promise, or that maybe are deceptively clothed in the garb of Christianity? but are really no gospel at all. Are you aware of those other gospels, those other idols that you might be listening to over and above the true King, Jesus Christ? Well, this leads to our second point then. Second, by virtue of Jesus' unique relationship to the Father. So because of who Jesus is, as we've just talked about, we also learn about his mission. And foundationally so, His mission, Jesus' mission as the eternal son of God, is to align himself with the will and authority of the Father. There's no other option. His mission is to align himself with what God wants and where God is leading him, and then to bring the will and authority of God to bear on humanity. But before we even get to the climax of the narrative, so if, we're, if, we, think of this, if we think of this narrative as sort of a, a mountaintop where we're sort of climbing the hill, verse 49 would be at the top of that hill, right? That's a very climactic statement. It's the climax of this narrative. But before we even get to that text, and we'll talk about that text significantly in a second, we find that Jesus is driven by the will and authority of God from the very start, right as, he's, right as narrative starts its ascent of climbing to verse 49. First, we notice that Jesus and his parents are driven by the will and authority of God in a very ordinary way by going to Jerusalem for Passover. According to Jewish law, it was only the men, so those uh, men would be considered those above 13 years old. Jesus is a 12-year-old, so not quite there yet. Those men above 13 who were required to attend three festivals a year. They were required to attend the Passover. They were required to attend Pentecost and tabernacles, and all of information about those festivals can be found uh, elsewhere in scripture. We'll we'll talk about all those. So anyway, for a family to be attending Passover is a special mark of piety, because only the men, those above 13, were required to attend these festivals. And this tells us, simply put, that Jesus is being raised in a household that serves God. 
They don't do just what's required of them. They don't do the bare minimum. They actually go above the law. So we see right from the start that this entire family is being driven by the will and authority of God. It's significant. And then second, as we progress in the narrative, we progress up the hill, we find that Jesus is uh, taking his own private excursion into the temple in order to sit with Jewish teachers. Culturally, as a 12-year-old, Jesus would have been in an age where intensive instruction was the norm. That was pretty common for a 12-year-old to sit under Jewish teachers. It was normal because at age 13, they would be then considered a man, so they had to do all of their learning, all of their instruction before they got to that point. So this is normal. But we also find in this text that Jesus is like that one student in every class, we all know the type, who seems to have all the answers, uh, who seems to always have his hand raised, you know, people like me in the class uh, who are always the ones speaking out, and who even shock their teachers by knowing more than their teachers do. He's he's that kind of student. But this isn't because, unlike unlike me, you know, when I stand out in in classes and everything like that, I'm just kidding, but unlike me, uh, it's not because Jesus is trying to score brownie points here. It's once again because he's being driven by the will and authority of God in ways that not even his teachers were. I think of Psalm 119, Psalm 119 verses 97 through 99 in this regard. And that text reads this, Psalm 119, 97 through 99. The psalmist prays, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers For your testimonies are my meditation. That's a favorite psalm to pray for for kids too, right? Even more understanding than all of your teachers. Just kidding. Joke again. Uh, But this is Jesus exemplifying this model of Psalm 119, 97 through 99, who has incredible understanding, who surpasses his teachers in understanding. And it's because even from the start of his life, he's being driven and pushed forward by the will and authority of God. Well, finally then, we get to Jesus' climactic statement in verse 49. We're on top of the hill where Jesus declares, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now we we find the explicit statement on the lips of Jesus that his mission, what Jesus is all about, is consumed and caught up with the will and authority of the father. You see, friends, this statement, I must be in my father's house, isn't merely about location. Now, it's true that Jesus is currently in the temple, absolutely he is, and that he refers to the temple here as well as elsewhere in Luke's gospel as his father's house. It's an important place for Jesus, and as we'll see shortly in a second, this statement where Jesus says, I must be in my father's house, even foreshadows, meaning it looks forward to the next time Jesus will be in the temple in Luke's gospel, and we'll talk about that in a second. But this phrase also functions as more than just a marker denoting the importance of a physical location. Consider this for a second, parents and children, specifically the fathers in the room, or those of you who who submit to your father, hopefully so. Um, When dad says to you, as long as you're living under my roof, you will not wear those clothes, or you will not watch that TV show, or or use that language. I'm sure we've all had our dads say things like that. As long as you're living under my roof. Well, what's dad saying when he says that? Well, he's asserting his authority, isn't he? He's saying that as long as you're living in my house, as long as you're living under my roof, there are certain parameters I'm calling you to abide by, to stay within. So when Jesus discusses in our text his father's house, 
He's not only talking about the temple, that is part of it, and we'll get there in a second, but the statement also serves to undergird everything Jesus will do in his ministry to follow, because everything he does, as we learn from this text, is driven by the will and authority of God. This is a text, this is a statement about the will and authority of God. Jesus is declaring that his mission is to submit to the Father's authority and will. And the goal of this mission, so that's his mission, simply put, is to submit to the Father's authority and will. And the goal of this mission, where it all leads and how it all plays out, is to bring the rule of God wherever he goes. Well, in several ways, like I said, our text today also has a foreshadowing function, meaning that it largely whets our appetite for what's ahead. And really, the entire, the entire infancy narrative section does that. It gives us several names. It gives us several, uh, several prophetic addresses of praise that make us ask, well, what's going to happen there? How is this all going to play out? The entire infancy narrative section really has that foreshadowing function. It causes us to think, as we read the rest of Luke's gospel, oh, I see how all these pieces are tying together. It has that function. And our text today also has that function. It calls us to look forward to. It whets our appetite for what's ahead. Remember, at this point, Jesus' ministry still hasn't commenced. And although we learn about Jesus' stunning relationship to the Father and his mission that flows from this relationship, there's still a ton of questions we need to ask. And again, it leaves us with curiosity. Where is this all going? How is this all going to turn out? And as we progress in Luke's gospel, we find that Jesus' divine obligation to doing the Father's will and bringing the rule and authority of God to humanity will ultimately lead to his death. In our passage today, we find Jesus sitting and learning at the feet of these Jewish teachers. He's sitting and learning in the temple. But as one commentator writes, one day, Jesus' questions will pierce to the very core of the religious establishment, and he will give the answers to his own questions. You see, friends, this, this, this uh, narrative section today and this statement, I must be in my father's house, moves us ahead 17 chapters in Luke's gospel. Because as soon as this narrative ends, Jesus leaves with his parents, they go out of his father's house. And so we, we read this statement, I must be in my father's house, and it leaves us curious. Well, if Jesus must be in his father's house, then when is he going to arrive in his father's house again? And we find that Jesus arrives in his father's house Again, 17 chapters later in Luke 19. In Luke 19, Jesus is going, goes into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and then he enters the temple to cleanse it. Rather than sitting inquisitively at the teacher's feet, it's now Jesus who's doing the teaching. In that text, in Luke 19, when we, we find that Jesus is primarily entering the temple, we call it the temple cleansing episode, he primarily enters the temple, and right off the bat, by the text that he quotes, if you're looking at uh, Luke 19, 45 and following, he condemns right off the bat rampant corruption among the priesthood. You see, the priesthood at this point in Jewish history had been so self-absorbed by greed they were so driven by ethnic divisions that they long ago failed to heed the authority and the revealed will of God. The temple was supposed to be a place of justice. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. It was supposed to be a place where the peoples of the earth gathered to be near to God, the God of the universe. But the priesthood 
had failed to uphold their responsibilities. They failed to uphold the temple as holy. And that's what Jesus is lashing out at in the temple cleansing episode in Luke 19. Well, then after that episode, so again, I said this text, our text today has a foreshadowing function, meaning it foreshadows, it looks to the end of Luke's gospel. And as we continue in the end, towards the end of Luke's gospel, right after the temple cleansing episode in chapters 20 and 21, we find Jesus standing in the midst of the temple. He's still in his father's house, so to speak. Only this time, he's announcing that the locust for God's glory is no longer in the temple. God was and is building a new temple around Jesus in whom peoples from all nations, all ethnicities, and all races are invited to join themselves to. Jesus is now the place for the needy and the outcasts to go to. Jesus is the one that the peoples of the earth are called to cast their burdens upon. The priesthood and the Jewish leadership had utterly failed, but Jesus would succeed by becoming the once and for all Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of his people. And then finally, again in chapter 22, as the end of Luke's gospel progresses forward, immediately after Jesus finishes his teaching in the temple, we learn that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Following the Father's will would lead to his death but it would also lead to his glory. Luke tells us in chapter 9 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and scribes. He must be killed. And on the third day, he must be raised. Just as sure as Jesus must be in the Father's house, so too was it sure that he must suffer death, and so too was it certain that he would be raised and glorified in the resurrection. The mission of God that Jesus embraces in his life, in his ministry, and even in his death is one that brings for us as the people of God restoration, healing, and resurrection life. Friends, this is a king worth following. Well, looking back at our text this morning, Luke 2, 41 through 52, as the narrative section closes, we find once again that Mary is treasuring all these things, pondering them in her heart. Remember, this was Mary's response right after Jesus' birth when the shepherds paid her a visit. She treasured, she pondered these things, treasured them in her heart. And 12 years later, we find that Mary, this is still Mary's response. Friends, Jesus cannot be fully grasped or fully understood in one cursory reading of the Gospels. Jesus cannot be fully grasped even if you study the Scriptures all year long. Jesus cannot be mastered. Rather, Jesus masters us. In verse 47, Jesus is in the temple, and it, the text tells us that all, of, all who heard him, they marveled, they were amazed at his understanding now, this word denoting Jesus' understanding is a word that indicates Jesus' ability to pierce the heart of an issue. And friends, this is what Jesus does to us in the Holy Spirit. He pierces our hearts, he searches us, and he knows us. Meeting Jesus, to quote New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, will normally involve a surprise. Every time we relax and think we've really understood him, he will be up ahead or perhaps staying behind while we go on without thinking. Discipleship always involves the unexpected. 
Well, as the scene in our text closes this morning, it also closes out the infancy narrative section of Luke's gospel. As we've seen the past two months, a lot has happened thus far in these first two chapters. And luckily, there's even more in store for us as we move forward. But more than anything, this narrative sets the tone as we move forward. It calls us to sit at the feet of Jesus, to take the posture of a student and learn. It calls us to encounter Jesus as those not trying to master him, but those who need to be ready for the unexpected, as those who need to be ready to be mastered, to be shaped, to be molded by the one we call Lord, maybe even painfully so. It calls us to get ready to be mastered by the king. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you that you've met us in your word this morning and given us a lot to think about, a lot to process over. And I pray that as we leave here this morning, and as we meet Jesus in the word of God this week, that you would continue to surprise us, that you would confront us in our idolatry, that you would encourage us in our discouragement, and you would give us hope. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.